please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. As Pastor Dan shared, our dear sister Kay Fister went home to be with the Lord. Such a wonderful, wonderful Christ follower, um, part of Greece Assembly of God in the early, early years of, of this fellowship. And God used her in a mighty way. And several years ago, she moved to Pennsylvania to, to live with her daughter, Karen. And so we remember her life and we thank God um, for her and her imprint, her fingerprints that are all over this ministry. And July 11th, we'll be having a celebration of life service here and more details will be shared. I'd like to take a moment before we look to God in his word to pray for Michelle Viola. I shared with you last week about her father and um, he still is, is um, living and, and we're, we, we are grateful for that. We continue to lift Michelle Viola's father um, before the Lord for uh, divine healing. But yesterday, um, late afternoon, um, she had reached out to share with me that her older brother, Artie, um, was hit by a train and, and died. And so if we can remember Michelle and her family um, during this time of, of tremendous loss. And, and please, um, her mother doesn't know yet or her dad. And I'm going to be, after the service, joining the family to sit down to share um, with both, the mo- both her mother and her, her father. So if you would pray for that time as well. Can we, can we join our hearts together in prayer? And gracious Father in heaven, um, We just lift up Michelle to you and her entire family, this tragic loss. Artie's two daughters, Lord, we just lift them before you today and we pray, God, for your comfort, for your comfort, that you would pour out your grace. Lord, we have nowhere to turn, nowhere to look but to you. And so we pray in Jesus' name for your comfort, for your grace, for your strength. And Father, prepare Michelle's mother and, and father, Lord, to receive this news later today. God, prepare their hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. This is part 2 in our summer series entitled, James, Christianity, that walks. Follow along as I read verses 2 through 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man. Unstable in all his ways. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who you have sent us, who is our 
teacher. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through your holy word, that you would open our hearts and minds, grant us understanding that our faith would be encouraged, strengthened, and built up in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you read the New Testament letters, you will find that most of them begin with a formal greeting to the writer's audience. The Apostle Paul often extends a warm greeting to the church or an individual he's writing to. Peter greets the church with a blessing in his two letters. James, like the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, gets right to the point. The situation needs immediate response and formalities just can't wait. And perhaps you're here today. Perhaps you have had some pressing um, issues that needed attention. And so you, you make a phone call and, and you skip the formalities. And that's what James is doing. He is skipping the hi, how are you, and getting right to what's on his mind. And so here James is getting right to the crux of Christianity. He doesn't beat around the bush. He wants to discuss trials and sufferings. We are no strangers to trials and sufferings on this side of heaven. So if you get a bunch of believers together to talk about the Christian life, what topic should we bring up first? Marriage? Christian marriage? Parenting? Evangelism? Discipleship? Prayer? James thinks suffering. Suffering was an essential component to the life of early Christians, and James wants to provide the context for Christian life, for Christian living. Christianity began, as we know, in a hostile environment with many enemies, and those enemies still exist today. So the context of this letter, the, the letter that the epistle of James and all the letters, in fact, of the New Testament is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Instead, the context for the early church is trials, suffering, and persecution. Not American Christianity, comfort and ease. And so we're not talking today, James is not talking today to us through God's word about American Christianity. We're talking about a bunch of believers being persecuted, enduring immense trials, some being killed for their faith, some being lit up like a torch. These are people who knew suffering. And Christ himself knew intense suffering and death. The founder, the author of our faith, Christ himself, suffered immensely. I want to encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 53. Really describes the suffering servant who hung on the cross, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the apostles and disciples and many of the early Christians suffered as well. Christianity was birthed in darkness. 
Christ was crucified and there was a great darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour we read in the scripture. This refers to noon to 3 p.m. on the day Christ was crucified. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says, for it was fitting for him Christ from whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The disciples followed in the footsteps of Christ. The apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he writes in Philippians chapter one, verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, in biblical Christianity, suffering is assumed. Suffering and trials are not foreign to the Bible. They are assumed. It's not if you face trials, but when you face trials in today's text. Sometimes suffering is compounded because we expect not to face suffering as Christ followers. Why do we suffer? It's not an easy question to answer. And the question should not be given an off-the-cuff response. Humans suffer for many reasons. Some because of their own sin, some because of another person's sin, and some for simply living in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. It's a broken world. The type of suffering or or trials that James is referring to here in our text are the tests and trials that come into the life of the believer that causes them to doubt the sovereignty and love of God. We're not talking about every kind of suffering known to humanity in today's text. We're discussing specifically the trials of believers. Why do those tests and trials come? Is there a reason for them or are they meaningless? Are they all in vain? James provides an answer. Throughout the Bible are people who turn defeat into victory and trial into triumph. They didn't just go through the valley of the shadow of death. They grew through the valley of the shadow of death by the grace of God, heaven's strength. James tells us that we can have this same kind of experience today. No matter what the trials may be on the outside or the temptations on the inside, through faith in Christ, we can grow, spiritually speaking. We can mature in the Christian faith. James provides us four imperatives, four commands. The first one is this, if you're taking notes, count. Count. A joyful attitude. Look at verse 2 of our text. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. He, He begins by laying out the right way to respond when trials come. Count it all joy. Now this phrase can be taken out of context and made to mean what it doesn't mean. The phrase, count it all joy, can be misunderstood to mean only respond with joy when you go through trials. No other emotion or experience is permissible. In other words, 
sorrow and sadness are unacceptable in the Christian's life. That is clearly not true. That is not what James is communicating. Jesus himself, the Bible tells us, was a man full of sorrows. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And sometimes we have to be careful. Sometimes we want to over-spiritualize our experiences. I refuse to feel pain and sorrow. I will grin and bear it. I will muster up my courage and face this trial with a giant plastic grin. We do that. In fear of what others are gonna think of us as Christ followers. That is not what James is getting at, not at all. He is not commanding us to suppress our real emotions He's not commanding us to suppress how we really feel. He is not telling these Jewish believers to deny their own human emotions. Emotions of sadness and sorrow, church, are normal human responses to trials. And none of us are strangers. We just experience emotion of sorrow. Real emotions of shock and grief. That is why Jesus has compassion on people. He does not look with indifference at the suffering of humanity and say, get over it. Just pick up your bootstraps and move on with your life. That's not what Jesus says at all. Not at all. He looks at human suffering with compassion. And in the same way, that is how we should look at other people's trials. Don't be surprised by them. Don't give them an easy answer because there isn't one church. Endure suffering with them. That's biblical. Galatians 6, 1 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We know the law of Christ is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We like to say it this way here at Greece Assembly, loving God, loving people. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And then encourage them with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 5 verse 10 says, But may the God of all grace, of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Because these Jewish believers James is writing to or God-scattered people, they're not God-sheltered people, they will experience trials on the outside and temptations on the inside, and so will we. None of us are exempt. My brethren, James Wright, count it all joy when, not if, you fall into various trials. 
Jesus warned his disciples in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We have hope. We have sorrow. In that sorrow, we have hope. Not a hope so. We have a confident hope in Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. One of my favorite verses. Paul told his converts in in, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's not a smooth road. The Christian life is a warring life with lots of battles all the way to heaven. But there's a God who loves you. There's a God who's with you. He's gracious. Peter writes in his first letter in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which will try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So what does James mean when he commands these Jewish believers, count it all joy? The key word in that phrase is count. Oftentimes we make joy the key word, but the key word is count. It's a financial term, and it means to evaluate. To evaluate. You see, outlook determines outcome, and attitude determines action. Our values determines our evaluations. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the hope we have in Christ, then trials will make us bitter and not better. The Bible refers to joy as contentment in Christ above all else. A settled contentment in Christ above all else. In the Old Testament, Job says in, 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 in his letter, in Job chapter 23, verse 10, but he, the Lord, knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold, as gold. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. This leads us to the second imperative command. No. Number two, no. An understanding mind. Look at verse two. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or steadfastness. Perseverance, if you're taking notes, write these words, steadfastness, perseverance, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, produces steadfastness, produces perseverance. No, be confident as you are rooted in Christ that the Lord masterfully creates beauty from the trials of life. No, no, that your trials have a purpose, a divine purpose, an eternal purpose. Strange as it may seem, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. Faith is like muscle tissue. If you stress it to the limit, it gets stronger, not weaker. 
In weightlifting, the heavier the weight, the stronger you get. Church, allow the weightiness of your trial to strengthen your faith. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I don't think there's not one person here this morning that cannot identify with these words of the Apostle Paul. There was a purpose in this extreme suffering that he writes about to the church in Corinth that Paul would not rely on himself and his resources, but on God. We drift, we fall into that trap of relying on ourselves, trusting in ourselves, in our possessions. We drift and we, 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 we don't rely on the Lord and his resources. We all drift and God loves us that he's gonna shake us to correct the drift in our lives so we will stop relying on ourselves and rely upon him. Amen? He writes that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Church, our trials have a purpose. They're not fun, but we gotta trust the son, S-O-N. I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. Our trials have a purpose. The Lord's purpose is that by his grace we will grow deeper and stronger in our confidence that himself, that in Jesus Christ, all that we have need of, all that we have need of is found in him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, Colossians 1.27, oh, jot it down. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can we say that together? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Trials on the inside produce something spiritual on the inside. We're talking about strong faith, a strong faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that is tried, a faith that is testing, a faith that is unwaving. And this faith is precious to God. God does not have the same value system as the world. God's kingdom has a totally different value system. What is valuable in the eyes of God is not valuable in the eyes of the world. A strong faith has no market value. Patience, steadfastness, perseverance is not something you buy a car with or or use as a down payment for a new home. But faith, church, faith is, is beautiful in the eyes of God and has tremendous value in the kingdom of God and the purposes of God in your life, in my life, and how he wants to spend us in this world for his glory 
and for the sake of others. Totally different value system. So Peter, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We're no strangers, are we, church? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you, having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, know our trials are not in vain. They might seem like it, feel like it, look like it, but they're not in vain, bringing only pain. They are working for our spiritual gain. Jesus promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Trials work for us, not against us. Paul, right into the church, in Rome, he, he writes in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. He writes in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter four, verses 17 and 18, once again, for our light affliction, what is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why we would... Why we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Trials rightly used help us to mature our faith and strengthen our dependence on the Lord. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We realize that God has a purpose in trials. There is no substitute for an understanding mind. No, an understanding mind. Church, there is no, I want to stress, there is no substitute for an understanding mind. Satan can defeat the believer who does not know the word of God. Who does not know the promises of God. Who doesn't understand that the purpose for trials... Satan can defeat the believer who does not know the word, but he cannot overcome the Christian who knows the Bible and understands trials on the outside produce something spiritual, deeply spiritual on the inside. Be vigilant. Satan uses our trials to tear us down. God uses them to build us up. The Bible talks about being vigilant. We have a real enemy. The Bible says he's roaming around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And he'll come out at those vulnerable places and times in our lives when we find ourselves in the thick of it. 
We're being tested beyond our capacity or we think beyond our capacity, but God knows things about us that we don't know about ourselves. This brings us to James' third imperative, command. Let, let, number three, let a surrendered will. Look at verse four. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God's goal for our lives, church, is maturity. We talked about this last week. He wants a finished product that is mature and complete. This is the life where this happens. And one day we will be with our Savior in glory and the finished product is complete completeness. Amen? Paul outlined three works that are involved in a complete Christian life. First, there is the work of God that God does for us, which is salvation. Jesus completed this work on the cross. Second, there is the work of God that he does in us, for we are his workmanship. This work is known as sanctification. That's the process we're all in right now. God builds our character uh, in this place of, of sanctification. He builds our character and we become more and more like Jesus. How many are becoming more and more? You don't have to raise your hands. How many are becoming more and more like Jesus? Third, the third work is what God does through us, ministry service. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. God builds character before he calls to ministry service. He must work in us before he can work through us. In the Old Testament, God spent 25 years working with Abraham before he could give him his promised son. God worked 13 years in Joseph's life, allowing him to face various trials and tests before he could be put on the throne of Egypt. God spent eight years preparing Moses for 40 years of of ministry service in the wilderness. Jesus took three years training his disciples. You see, God's work cannot be perfected in us without a surrendered will. God's not going to do all the work. We have to work with him, church. We have to cooperate with God. We have to surrender. Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He worked with his father. He prayed, God, if this father, God, if this, if this cup of wrath can, can, can pass... There's another way. Take it. But this is how he surrendered, where he cooperated with God. Not my will, but your will be done. A surrendered will is so very, very important in the midst of of trials. If we try to go through trials without surrendered wills, we will not grow up in the faith. We will remain infants, grown up, but not grown up in the faith. This brings us to James' fourth imperative command. Ask. Ask a believing heart. Look at verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith 
with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we are going through difficult times, what should we pray about? James gives the answer. Ask God for wisdom. The wisdom needed in trials come from God. Not just any wisdom, but God's wisdom. Someone has said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart, while wisdom is the ability to put them together. You see, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And if we're going to use the knowledge of God correctly, we're going to interpret the knowledge of God correctly that's recorded in this book. We need the wisdom of God that's also in this book. Amen, church? We both need the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Why do we need wisdom when we're going through trials? Why not ask for strength? Well, you can, it's okay. Why not ask for grace? You can, it's okay. We, we need strength, we need grace. Why not ask for deliverance? Well, you can. But James zeroes right in, tunnel vision, and he says in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your testing, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom on how to pray. And the Holy Spirit will impart to you the wisdom of heaven to guide you in your prayer. Can I hear a big amen? Amen. For this reason, we need wisdom, God's wisdom. So we will not waste the opportunities he has given us to grow us, to mature us. How many opportunities have I wasted because I haven't asked God for his wisdom? We see in our text, we're commanded to seek wisdom and to seek it in faith. Verse six says, but let him ask in faith. Ask in faith with no doubting. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our savior, ascended king, soon coming king. It's not enough to simply ask God for wisdom. Jesus adds more to this request. Our asking for wisdom from God must be asked in faith. Notice the asking in faith is contrasted with asking and doubting. You see, James is not saying that a Christian never has some doubts. Uh, I've had my share of doubts. I don't think I'm alone here today. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying that we have a faith that is never shaken. Nor is James speaking about being uncertain about whether or not something is God's will. You see, the doubting that James has in view in our text is the doubting of God's character and the unwaving of our commitment to God. This is what he's dealing with. 
James compares the doubting believer to the waves of the sea, up one minute and down the next. We all know waves are never sturdy. They're they're not steady. They go from high point to low point in just seconds. You see, a person who is like a wave asks God for wisdom and then immediately doubts that God will even answer their prayer. James says they are double-minded. One moment they have faith that God will answer, the next moment they are uncertain if God even cares. You've been there? We all have. James says that God is not like that. God is generous and he gives wisdom, lots of wisdoms to those who ask in faith. Faith in the Bible, church, is not blindly believing that something will happen. Faith is trusting God to be exactly who God is and not doubting his holy character, not doubting his perfect character. He'll always be true to his promises. He'll always be true to his word. Can I hear a big amen? He will always be true to who he is. Even when we can't understand, even when we can't see, faith, a gift from God, causes us to have a deep trust, a deep confidence. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We see the Apostle Paul contrast faith and doubt in the same way in speaking about the life of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. He he writes, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. He was able to perform. Abraham knew it. He had that, that inner, that deep trust in God that what he promised, he was also able to perform. I pray and trust that your faith is built up and encouraged and strengthened today as the word of God is being preached. You see, asking faith refers to being fully convinced that what God has promised, he is able to perform. When we ask doubting God's character and that he keeps his word, Sadly, we have no anchor in life. We have nothing to put our hope in. We get tossed to and fro with every wind and doctrine. You see, without God as our anchor, we are going to be ripped apart when the wind and waves of life blow and hit hard against us. In church, you're no stranger to the wind that blows in this life and the waves that that pound us. James says the person who prays doubting God's character is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, all his ways. Everything, all the relationships, Everything is unstable, shaky. The double-minded man is a picture of a person whose loyalties are divided. One moment they are relying on God, standing on his promises. The next moment they are relying on man. Man's wisdom, so limited, One day they are seeking God's wisdom. The next day they are seeking the world's wisdom. We get impatient. Come on, God. Come on, God. We get impatient. 
Man, we have so many examples in the Old Testament about people who became impatient. This is what it means to be double-minded. You're seeking two types of wisdom. A wisdom from above and a wisdom from below. James says this person is unstable in all his ways. As I conclude today's message, the goal for the Christian life is not a comfortable life. No amens. But a life that is conformed to the image of Christ. And a life conformed to the image of Christ cannot happen apart from trials. The goal of the Christian life is not just to survive trials, but to go not only through them, but to grow and mature in Christ-likeness. And God's purpose is not for us to just go through the trials of life, but to grow through the trials of life. He uses trials to grow us, to perfect us in our faith. I take great comfort in Hebrews chapter four. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, write this passage down, Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. And I hope it brings great comfort to you. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, the word boldly means with confidence, deep confidence and assurance to the throne of grace, God's throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm so grateful for this glorious, glorious promise. Here's a recap of the four imperatives, the four commands given to us by James. Number one, count. A joyful attitude. Outlook determines outcome. Attitude determines action. Number two, know. An understanding mind. Faith is always tested. Testing works for us, not against us. It's so important important that we understand God's word when it comes to trials, temptations, and tests. Number three, let a surrendered will. We must work with God. God builds character before he calls us to service. And number four, ask a believing heart. Pray for wisdom, God's wisdom. But be sure to ask in faith that God is who he says he is, even when he doesn't answer according to your timetable. Would you join me standing and can we praise God for his word this morning? As the worship team leads us in this chorus, maybe you find yourself in the thick of things. And it would really bless you today to have some folks come around you and to pray for you and to encourage you. As the worship team leads us in this song, if you would desire to have some prayer, 
to be encouraged in your faith. You're in the midst of it. We're here for you. We'd love to pray for you. Feel free and come at this time.